A 2019 report from Environment and Climate Change Canada states that this country is warming at double the global rate, half of which is likely driven by human activity. These extreme hot temperatures will become more frequent and more intense. This will increase the severity of heat waves and lead to increased drought and wildfire risks. Now, many of us have felt these effects, but did you know that older adults are especially vulnerable to the effects of extreme temperatures? How can we reimagine healthy aging if we're losing what it means to have a healthy planet? I'm Zanet Rezo. Welcome to the Future Age podcast, where we explore creative solutions in reimagining what life could look like as we get older. If you enjoy this episode, please follow or subscribe on your favorite listening app. For this episode, we're exploring the impact of climate change on healthy aging. While the effects continue to be dire, we discuss how to rethink the way we live, restructure our economy, and revisit our relationship with nature in order to thrive under these circumstances. I spoke to Dr. Trevor Hancock, a public health physician, a retired professor at the University of Victoria, and an activist. He says while older adults are feeling the early effects of climate change, such as fluctuating temperatures, wildfires, and air pollution, the biggest impact will happen mid to late 21st century. In addition to health, extreme temperatures will affect how we grow our food and whether we'll be uprooted from where we live because of, say, flooding or wildfires. Trevor tells me that climate change is only one part of the picture. First of all, climate change is one of a, a series of Earth system changes that humans have triggered. There's a concept out there called planetary boundaries, which looks at a dozen or so key Earth systems, climate change being one, biodiversity, pollution, water supply, land use, ozone layers that protects us from UV radiation, and so on. It's not just climate change, it's massive air pollution. 2021 stats from Health Canada estimates that air pollution accounts for over 15,000 premature deaths a year. So all of this together is creating a crisis in what people are calling planetary health, the well-being, the health of the planet and its ecosystems. We depend upon those, we call them the ecological determinants of health. We depend upon nature's provision of oxygen, water, food, fuels materials that we build things with, everything we look at around us that we've built, we've built with materials that come from nature. And so we're damaging all of these systems all at once, and all of them are connected to our health and well-being. In case you're wondering why older people are more vulnerable to extreme weather like a heat wave, it's because of a reduced ability to cool their body through sweating or being able to sense when they're dehydrated. Being on medication can make these effects worse. Having air conditioning, fans, and transportation to get to cooler places are key to preventing health issues and death. And because immune systems of older people tend to be weaker, they're more susceptible to the increasing number of infectious diseases that are linked to global warming. An unpredictable climate makes older people who are in poor health more likely to be socially isolated and those with hearing or vision impairments more likely to suffer physical and mental health challenges. And older women experience the effects of climate change most, simply because they make up more of the older population and, crucially, because they tend not to have as much money as their male counterparts. The connection between nature and its impact on older adults is fairly clear, as studies show that having access to green spaces and urban gardens is linked to better health, which might include less inflammation, lower risk of heart disease, and slower cognitive decline, among other things. Overall, people say they're more satisfied with life and feel more socially connected when they get this kind of access to nature. These benefits of connecting with nature plus the effects of a changing climate 
led to a call to focus on creating a healthy planet as a global shared purpose. In March 2022, the World Health Organization released the Geneva Charter, which outlines the urgency of creating sustainable well-being societies. I asked Trevor to explain the concept of a well-being society in more detail. So what we've got is a system that maximizes economic capital by damaging or destroying natural capital and also often harming human and social capital. So it's a very distorted system. And so a well-being society flips that all on its head. The World Health Organization actually set up a Council on the Economics of Health for All, which reported out in late May at the World Health Assembly. And one of the key things it says is that we have to shift from putting the economy at the center to putting people and the planet at the center. And so a well-being society is really based on that principle. Trevor goes on to talk about the five action areas of the Geneva Charter. The first was to sort of respect and cherish and nurture nature. The second was to create a well-being economy. The third was to develop healthy public policies for the common good. Now that means what's a healthy food policy? What's a healthy agricultural policy? What's a healthy housing policy? What's a healthy transportation policy? A policy in those areas that maximizes both human well-being and planetary well-being at the same time. The fourth area was around universal health care access. But in the fifth area, interestingly enough, was the uh, addressing the health impacts of the digital transformation. And if you include artificial intelligence, as we should in that digital transformation, then how do we address that? What are the health implications of that? It's a very fascinating new area to be thinking about. So putting all of that together is the basis of creating a well-being society. Trevor tells me about a letter he signed that was sent to Canada's first ministers in 2022 on World Health Day, calling for a well-being society. The letter was signed by 82 individuals and 38 organizations, including heavy hitters such as the Canadian Medical Association, the Canadian Nurses Association, and the David Suzuki Foundation. I asked him what response they got to this letter. We got a standard formula response from the, from the cabinet office and not much else. There's also a growing interest in, in health education uh, on planetary health, and uh, it's going to be one of the core principles of a new medical school at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby in British Columbia. Uh, it's been identified as a strategic priority by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. So there's a growing awareness and concern around the country coming out of the health field, but also out of the field of environment and economics. And so we're beginning to create alliances across those fields. So it sounds like with the health organizations, and now we're seeing other organizations from different sectors coming together. But what about everyday people? Well, I think there's several things. One, of course, is is uh, the simple advocacy role, or self-education is a good place to begin, to understand what are the problems with our current economic system and our current societal focus on the economy rather than on the well-being of planet. So from a, an advocacy perspective, what are those specific actions that everyday people can take? Well, one thing is check out your local environmental organizations and join them in the campaigns that they run because they're trying to do all of the things we just talked about. Talk to your local council. Does it have a climate plan? Does it have a plan to become what we're and others are calling a one planet community? Canada has a an ecological footprint equivalent to five planets worth. So each of us, on average, is using the equivalent of five planets worth of biocapacity every year. Well, 
of course, we only have one planet. So we have to reduce our ecological footprint. About two-thirds of that is carbon. So moving to a net-zero carbon economy is absolutely essential in reducing our footprint. But what are local municipalities doing to do that? Are they stopping urban sprawl, which is very energy intensive and wasteful? Are they developing intensification within cities? Are they developing walkable and bikeable communities? Are they managing their wastes responsibly? Are they supporting clean and green energy? So there's a lot that local municipalities can do, particularly in the areas of urban planning and design and in transportation. Generally speaking, anything that makes a community more sustainable makes it more healthy too, and vice versa. So what you're describing is basically this concept of creating age-friendly communities, cities, age-friendly societies. And while, yes, municipalities can take action, where's that money coming from? Well, I think one of the things we have to do, and and some of this has to happen, particularly at a national level, one of the uh, policy recommendations from the World Health Organization, when they put it very bluntly, is stop paying for pollution. So when we subsidize and support the fossil fuel industry, we're actually subsidizing and supporting pollution. We're subsidizing and supporting climate change. And that's crazy. Similarly, a lot of our agricultural subsidies and supports are supporting a meat-intensive, high-energy, high-resource-use system of agriculture. So we need to look at where are we spending that money and we need to shift it. Why not take every single penny of that and shift it to supporting clean and green energy yesterday? That's one source of money. The other, frankly, is we are a kind of middle-taxed country when it comes to where we sit in the world. I have no problem with paying taxes if they're being put to good use. I think that's a good use of my money. So these ideas require a shift in mindset. How do we do that? Well, it totally does. And and, uh, we can talk about changing the economy all we like, but we have to look at the values that underpin that economy. And as long as those values are values of we want stuff, we want more stuff, we want more money, more vacations, more everything, then we'll never stop the economy from growing and we'll therefore never stop the economy from undermining the ecological determinants of our health. So we have to shift those core values. I think part of it comes out of a concern for the future, for future generations. So it's not just about me, it's about future generations. And part of it comes out of reigniting, if you like, our relationship with nature. We have become very separated from nature, and we don't understand our relationship with nature. So I think we have to look at how do you reignite that nature, part of which is just getting out there and being in nature, or in the case of uh, cities, not trying to get everybody in the city out to nature, but how do we bring nature into the city. And another piece of that that I think is a really interesting area that we need to think more about is the role of faith communities in all of this. Because pretty much every faith community I know of at some place in it has something about respect for the for the creator's creation and some aspect of respecting nature. And, and then the third area, of course, is, is with uh, young people. And how do we get them engaged with nature, out in nature? How do we make this a core element of their curriculum? So picking up on your point about engaging young people, I've had conversations with younger colleagues. And what I've heard is there's a lot of anger among younger generations where they look at older generations and say, look what you've done. This is the state of the planet. So there is a lot of anger. And perhaps there's an opportunity to tap into that anger 
but what would be some intergenerational strategies that you would recommend? Well, first of all, I think there is a lot of anger, and quite rightly. I mean, our legacy is not a very positive legacy when you look at, uh, at what we're leaving for the next generations. I think what we have to do is to, how do you turn that anger into positive energy? One of the things that I do when I talk with high school students and young people is I say, well, yeah, we're going to have to change everything, literally everything, our core values, our economy, the way we live our lives. But when you have to change everything, that's also an incredible opportunity. You get an opportunity to reinvent everything. And so how, how does that translate on it? And, and that can translate into creating new music that talks about these things or new theater or new art, maybe science discovery. It may be faith practice. It's limitless, but it calls for a huge amount of creativity, of entrepreneurial thinking. There's actually money to be made in this. There's nothing wrong with making money. I have no problem with that as long as you're making money by doing good. And so what do these high school students say to you? How do they react to this? I find generally that message is received well. In terms of intergenerational, I think uh, one of the things to think about is that relationship with nature. So there is a, a lot of older people, for example, who have a lot of skills in gardening and growing things and being out in nature. Um, and how do you share those skills? And I think there's opportunities to encourage that. And I think that can be a kind of a two-way street. Often what older people lack is the technological skills. So how do you set up something that sets up a kind of mutual learning? You know, we've had conversations in previous episodes where we talk about this intergenerational mixing and mingling, which we've done in the past. And it's a really strong and proven strategy to combat ageism and all of those negative stereotypes. So I think it's really win-win on so many different fronts. I want to talk a little bit about another concept we've delved into in episode five, which is this idea of creating impact networks. And that's where we put a shared purpose or a challenge in the middle of a network. And then we invite people from across different sectors or people who are impacted by this issue to come together and create an interconnected strategy to address the challenge. Now, who are some of these key players that you think need to be at the table? Well, interestingly enough, that is the sort of local work that I'm doing. So I, I've, over my career, I've worked at all levels from the local to the global. I tend to prefer working locally. I believe that most innovation and change starts locally and spreads upwards. I don't think it starts at the top and spreads down. The NGO is called Conversations for a One Planet Region. And the idea is really quite simple. And that is, we face these huge challenges. The response has to be that we have to become a one-planet region, just as Canada has to become a one-planet country. What does that mean? What does that look like? And are we even talking about it, which we aren't? We're now in the process of convening some key leaders across a range of different areas, government, the private sector, faith communities, uh, other NGOs, cultural organizations. We're going to be meeting sometime in this summer to, I hope, kick off a process of a one to two to three year process of all sorts of different ways of engaging people in this conversation, whether it's through theater and art events or through kitchen table conversations or through neighborhood design charrettes or through citizens assemblies or whatever tools we can find 
But how do we engage people, first of all, in understanding the challenges, secondly, in imagining what a better future could look like that was taking us in the direction of being a one-planet region, and thirdly, starting to then co-design that. So it's not enough just to talk about it. What does that look like and how do we make it happen? So that's the challenge I would put at the center is how do we make this a one-planet region? What's the awareness out there in terms of this need for a planetary approach, a planetary health, and working towards a well-being society? The fact we're seeing changing weather is concentrating people's minds. I don't think the biodiversity crisis has really hit home yet, but it needs to. The pollution crisis likewise. So I, I think there's still a lot of awareness needed, but at the same time, I think there's a general sense of unease that this is not going well and we need to change direction. And you mentioned the anger of young people who do increasingly understand it. So, so we need to understand it, but we can't wait for everybody to get there. So we need to be moving at the same time as we're trying to raise awareness. And of course, you know, it's that old adage, you can get some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you'll never get all the people all the time. So it really is creating a social movement towards action. Yeah, I very much believe it's got to be a social movement, but it's got to be a social movement that includes the private sector, includes government, includes universities, includes faith communities, includes all of the different people and organizations that are part of our lives. I wondered how Canada compares to the rest of the world in taking action towards planetary health. Trevor tells me that we fare poorly and we need to look at places like New Zealand, Finland, Iceland, Scotland, and Wales who are working towards or have taken big steps towards creating what's called a well-being budget, which sources money from other parts of the economy. But how do we actually make that happen? Well, I think there's some really interesting challenges coming up that are going to change the way we do things. There's this growing awareness of the power of artificial intelligence. And uh, I can remember years ago now in Japan, some workers, researchers there saying, we really need to tax robots because if robots replace people, they're still in factories as they increasingly have. If you look at how much how automated car production is, they're still generating income for the company. But in the old days, that income went back to people as wages and went to the government as income tax. Both those revenue streams are cut off. So you have people who are not being employed and you have income taxes that are not being generated. So tax robots and you can use that money. And, and that's going to be increasing in the case of not just robots in factories, but artificial intelligence replacing all sorts of skills we're beginning to see now, and it's just slowly beginning to surface what this might mean. If they're still generating wealth for the corporations, it shouldn't just flow to the corporations and their shareholders. It needs to flow back into society. So you could use that money to create something called a guaranteed annual income, which people have talked about for some years. And that guaranteed annual income would mean that people could then use the time that they're not working, and and you'd have to set this up to do it, to do some of the care work that needs doing. So we've got a crisis of care. We could pay people to do care work. We could pay people to restore environments, to plant trees, to do all sorts of things. So we might be seeing a shift from salaried paid work in a job to a combination of a guaranteed annual income and supplement uh, income, uh, earned income, in order to do the work of caring in society that needs doing. 
You know, it's fascinating. Taxing robots, that has not crossed my mind at all. So I find that really cool. So in Japan, obviously, there's a lot more reliance on robots. How would that translate to Canada? Oh, I I think it's going to be happening worldwide. Uh, Japan is is quite ahead of us and also has a much older uh, population than us, by the way. But I, I think it's going to be happening around the world. I, I don't know. I'm only just beginning to explore some of the implications of this in my own mind. But I do find that idea of using an income tax on robots, and for that matter, the other thing we have to do is, is a wealth tax. The level of inequality nationally and globally is frankly obscene. Once you've got your first billion, how many more billions do you really need? And there's a great phrase that came from a, a French philosopher called Raymond Aron some decades ago. And he said, when inequality becomes too great, the idea of community becomes impossible. So I want to focus on older people, older adults, and sometimes the narrative when it comes to climate change. So just bringing it back to that for a second is this narrative of being vulnerable and we need to protect older adults, which that's, I feel like, one part of the picture. But I do think we need to change the narrative a little bit where older adults are agents of change. Do you know of any groups in Canada where older adults or even other generations or an intergenerational initiative where people are getting together and actually taking action against climate change and towards a well-being society? Oh, absolutely. And the, the first one that comes to mind, which wasn't specifically about climate change, was the Raging Grannies. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Raging Grannies. I have not. Well, they're a Victoria-based uh, group of older women. They've uh, been around for decades, actually. And they're always at rallies and they, they sing great songs and entertain. That's how they explore their activism. But they, they're a quite radical group, actually. There are elders for forest protection, for, or elders for old growth, I think it's called out here in BC, who are a group of uh, elders who are working to protect forests. There's a lot of uh, older people involved in climate action networks here in BC and, and around the world. While there may be fruitless finger pointing as to which generation is responsible for the climate crisis, it's clear we need everyone involved, older adults included, and especially indigenous elders who are keepers of knowledge to restore biodiversity and ecosystems. Most importantly, we need to share successes through powerful storytelling. All right, Trevor, we're going to shift gears. I'm going to ask you two questions that we ask all our guests. The first one is, finish the sentence in 10 words or less. The future of aging should be... The future of aging should be a last opportunity to contribute to a better future. Wonderful. Now, you said you're 75. Let's time travel to when you're 100. What does your ideal life look like? I'd start with the premise that I, I'm not sure I necessarily want to be 100 years old. It depends on what the state of the world is. It depends what state I'm in in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I don't see it as some sort of race to live longest. There was a wonderful slogan the American Health Foundation had years ago now, decades ago, in fact. The secret of life, they said, is to die young, but as late as possible. But that doesn't have to be all the way through to 100. So I want to live well. I want to have an enjoyable old age. But I also want to leave gracefully when the time is right or when I decide I've had enough. What I do love is the idea that um, my remains get recycled. 
and I become part of that tree that you pass in the park, or I become part of that breath of air that you just took, or oddly enough, that I become part of that fish you just ate. So we actually get recycled, which is a, and, and reconnect to nature in a very interesting way when our time is done. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap this season. Thanks for joining us, Trevor. Thanks for joining us for this episode. To learn more and for transcripts, go to thefutureage.ca. Listen to new episodes by following us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're liking our podcast, leave a review on Apple or Spotify and be sure to share it with your friends, family and colleagues. The Future Age is brought to you by SE Health, a not-for-profit social enterprise whose purpose is to bring hope and happiness to the lives of Canadians. It's produced by the Future of Aging team and Podium Podcast Company. For more information, visit thefutureage.ca.